Elijah Rock, shout, shout. Elijah Rock, coming up, Lord. Elijah Rock, shout, shout. Elijah Rock. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. The life of Martin Luther King. In this hour, we wanted to talk about the way the media makes over Martin. And this comes from a column I had written in 2013, and here's how it begins. And you'll be hearing a lot from Martin, because I quote him intensely and extensively and compare and contrast his speeches with those of Malcolm X. Listen carefully to all the celebrations of Martin Luther King this week. Listen very carefully. There is one aspect of King's life that you won't hear much about, no matter how hard you try. His devotion to his faith, his devotion to his God, his devotion to Jesus Christ. Listen carefully and you'll hear endless mentions of Dr. Martin Luther King, but little if any mention of the Reverend Martin Luther King. Listen carefully to all of the video and audio clips and you'll hear some of the greatest rhetoric and some of the most passionate speeches of the 20th century. The sound bites and clips will stir your soul, but you won't hear the references to God that so often filled his speeches, nor will you hear references to the book that inspired him, the Bible. You won't hear references to God because the secular, secular media dislikes the Bible so much and public affirmations of a belief in Christ that they do everything in their power to redact them. The Reverend Martin Luther King loved the Bible so much that he got an undergraduate degree in Bible studies. At modern universities, they call it a divinity degree. His Ph.D. was in theology. To King, the Bible wasn't some strange old book that didn't have relevance in modern times. It was God's Word. It was a book that was and always will be, relevant because it expresses eternal principles and eternal truths. And you know how much the media hates talking about ideas like eternity, or principle, or that really awful word, truth. In a version of his famous A Knock at Midnight speech, which you are unlikely to hear in the media this week, you're going to hear it here. King started with a quote from one of his great speeches from Luke chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend, and shall go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine in his journey is come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Listen to his tenor and tone. This sounds more like a sermon you'd get on a Sunday. And it was. Why start a speech about the problems of the 20th century with a parable from an ancient text? Well, Reverend King explains why. Now this is a parable dealing with the power of persistent prayer. As I look at this parable, I see within it a basic outline and a basic guide 
in dealing with many of the problems that we confront in our nation and in the world today and the role of the church. Now the first thing that we notice in this parable is that it is midnight. It is also midnight in our world today. And we are experiencing a darkness so deep that we can hardly see which way to turn. It's midnight. He goes on then in this speech to talk about the limits of psychology to help us in this struggle at midnight. People are more worried, more frustrated, more bewildered today than at any period of human history. What are the popular books, the bestsellers in religion today? They are books entitled Peace of Mind, Peace of Soul, and who are the popular preachers? They are so often preachers who would preach nice little soothing sermons on how to be happy, how to relax, how to keep your blood pressure down. And so we have retranslated the gospel to read, go ye into all the world and keep your blood pressure down and lo, I will make you a well-adjusted personality. All of this is indicative of the fact that it is midnight in the psychological order. It is midnight in the psychological order, and King believes there's only one thing that can cure that, and that's a spiritual cure for those things that beleaguer us in the material world. And this was King's essence. And this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for the hour, you're going to hear from King more from this great speech and another. You'll also hear from a young Malcolm X. Because these two great men were competing for the soul of the nation. One a Christian voice of tolerance and love, and the other a radical Islamic voice of hate and anger. And in the end, war. This is Lee Habib and more with the story of the Reverend Martin Luther King here on Our American Stories. Just see 
At the end of a storm Is a golden sky And the sweet silver song Of a lark Walk This is Lee Habib. Elvis's love of gospel. Well, watch the documentary on it. Comes on PBS now and then. After his concerts, he'd go downstairs with his guys, go around a piano and play as he called it the music he really loved. By the way, he always performed it in public too. And we're celebrating the life of Dr. Martin Luther King and the universal appeal of his Christian. Faith. Well, we were just commenting during the break that, my goodness, it was so beautiful and so, so inspiring that young white Jewish kids from the north marched down in the south with them, and some, it cost them their lives. But Martin's faith inspired that kind of courage in people, even people who didn't believe as he believed. And for the hour, we're going to talk about how the media just doesn't bring so much of Reverend King's faith to light. And that's what we're doing here. Because, my goodness, it animated everything he did. And so we're covering his famous knock at midnight speech, which everyone should listen to and hear. It's one of the great sermons, I think, of all time, and one of the great pieces of theological thinking. So toward the middle of the speech, we had just heard King talk about the limits of psychology. And this is where God has to come in. King then goes on to condemn moral relativism. Midnight is a time when all moral values lose their distinctiveness. So in our world today, for so many people, there's nothing absolutely right, nothing absolutely wrong. Nobody is concerned about obeying the Ten Commandments in so many instances. They are not important. Everybody is busy trying to obey the Eleventh Commandment. Thou shalt not get caught. This tragic moral laxity, this tendency to be caught up in the chains of conformity, is destroying the soul of our nation. So why don't the media showcase this dimension of King, you might be wondering? Or this clip, we found it, they can't? Well, after all, his commitment to equality and his commitment to social justice were driven by the same spirit, the Holy Spirit. Why don't we see or hear the video clips of his religious speeches, even though they are easy to find? Thanks to YouTube. And that's where we found this one. You don't think producers at ABC, CBS, and NBC News could find this? We know why. Because secular liberals love to secularize the sacred. They love to remove King's source of inspiration, his love for God, and reduce it to something more earthly, such as his desire for social justice. But whose justice is the question? His own, the government's, the Supreme Court's? No. Always it was God's. Don't trust me on this one. In what may be the most beautiful document written in the 20th century, 
Letter from a Birmingham Jail. King identified his source of inspiration. And we had somebody do a dramatic reading of this, because I think it's one of the most beautiful pieces of writing in the 20th century. Pick it up and read it sometime. But take a listen to our guy do a reading from this remarkable pamphlet. We will win our freedom because the sacred heritage of our nation and the eternal will of God are embodied in our echoing demands. King was in jail when he wrote that because he believed that the law of man had created segregation, and that law was unjust. In jail, he had addressed why, as a man of God, he felt compelled to break the law to change it. How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. So here was King imposing his view of morality through his faith onto the legislative body. Today you would hear never-ending cries of separation of church and state. What a stupid and silly and narrow version of what that all means. King spoke with great clarity in this essay. He was fearless, he was faithful, and that's what made him so dangerous, not only to segregationists, but to racists everywhere. And that's why, by the way, totalitarians always get rid of God first. King also invoked God's mercy in his speeches, and nonviolence was always his methodology. Not everyone agreed, though, with King's approach back in the early 1960s. A young Muslim named Malcolm X had a different vision for black America. Malcolm X was a member of the Nation of Islam and a follower of its leader, Elijah Muhammad. Like King, Malcolm X was a brilliant orator, but he had little tolerance for King's Christian emphasis of nonviolence, especially the whole part about loving our enemies and the whole part about loving the same white people who had mistreated so many black people in our country. Indeed, Malcolm X thought King was weak and his message feeble. On more than one occasion, he publicly accused King of being an Uncle Tom, a tool of the white establishment. In Malcolm X's message to the grassroots in Detroit in 1963, he described the role of this Uncle Tom. The same old slave master today has Negroes who are nothing but modern Uncle Toms, 20th century Uncle Toms, to keep you and me in check, keep us under control. Keep us passive and peaceful in nonviolence. That's Tom making you nonviolent. And Tom was Reverend King. This was a direct attack. Malcolm X wasn't just attacking King, though. He was mocking him. In the same Detroit speech, he decried King's Christian nonviolence. Our revolution is bloody. Revolution is hostile. Revolution knows no compromise. Revolution overturns and destroys everything that gets in its way. And you sitting around here like a knot on the wall saying, I'm going to love these folks no matter how much they hate me. No, you need a revolution. Two competing visions, folks. One, Christian love. Another, well, let's face it. This was the Nation of Islam's hate creed. Malcolm X thought all of the hymns, all the prayers, all the hand-holding, all that churchiness, it was just plain silly. Whoever heard of a revolution where they lock arms, 
singing, we shall overcome. Just tell me you don't do that in a revolution. You don't do any singing, you're too busy swinging. Leadership matters, folks. Philosophy matters. So imagine being a young black man in the 1960s and hearing these two appeals. This was the fight. By the way, no one's doing this story today here on Martin Luther King's Day. Nobody's doing this. So thanks for listening. Thanks to my great team for pulling this all together. Luckily for America, King's Christian impulse prevailed. Now, you won't hear any of this on TV or the radio anytime today or this week. The media will simply ignore all this yucky, messy God talk and all the icky Jesus talk. And you won't hear the secular left invoke the separation of church and state when it comes to King's legacy. You will never hear the secular left complain that King used the power of his pulpit and the power of his faith to change the culture and indeed change the law. When many of us wonder as we approach the national holiday in his honor is this, what would King have to say about our current problems? What would he have to say about fatherlessness in the African-American community? Heck, in our whole country. What would he have to say about crime, drug abuse, the culture? What would he have to say about abortion? These are things to think about. And again, you heard what he was up against. It wasn't just the white folks going after him and the segregationists. It was black folks competing for the soul of African Americans across this country, Malcolm X in particular. We know what he would have said about the economy, by the way. King was a social justice liberal, and he cared passionately about the poor. When we come back, we're going to spend a little time talking about that and what Christians are implored to do by God with their money. And the question is, do we give it to the government to redistribute, or do we give it ourselves, give it to our churches and the churches redistribute that money? A big question, a big philosophical question we Christians grapple with every day. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. For the hour, Martin Luther King, the secularization of the sacred, and that's Reverend King. We will not call him Dr. King this hour. This is Lee Habib. 
And you're listening to Johnny Cash singing the most recorded song in world history. I love this song when I was an atheist, and I love this song as a Christian. Because the message is just so damn stirring and beautiful. We're talking about the life of Martin Luther King, and that's Reverend King for the hour, not doctor. And again, he had a doctorate in divinity studies. So this man lived for the Bible, and the Bible was the source of his inspiration. It was the source of his courage. And without the Bible, there is no Martin Luther King. And the media is not telling you that, and they don't want to tell you that, and that's why we are. And we were talking about that social justice part of Dr. King, and how not all Americans, and particularly not all Christians, see eye to eye on how best to deal with the vexing issues of poverty. But I think time has taught us a lot, and it would have been fascinating to hear and see what Dr. King would think about the trillions we've spent, and the way we've spent it to help poor people. And whether it's actually helped or perhaps hurt. Because it separated the church from the giving. It sent it to a bureaucrat, and the bureaucrat gave it. I think the biggest question would be, what would King have learned from European socialism and its effect on churches throughout that continent? You know, Dennis Prager, one of the the great sources of wisdom for me and one of my mentors once said something fabulous, and he's Jewish, but we see so eye to eye on almost everything. And he said, the bigger the government, the smaller the church and the smaller the synagogue. Would King see the folly of the great society or, like so many modern progressives, would he double down on the commitment to bigger government and redistributionist policies? I'm not here to give you the answers. Just answer a couple, ask a couple of questions. Whatever your opinions on the matter... Say this about Reverend King. He cared deeply for the poor. He was there. He showed up. He was in the streets fighting for the poor every day until his last. And let's talk about that last day. On April 3rd, 1968, and we're broadcasting from Oxford, Mississippi, not far from Memphis, an hour's drive. The night before his assassination, King gave a speech at the Mason Temple in Memphis then the Church of God headquarters. He was there to support black sanitation workers who had been on strike since March 12th for higher wages and better treatment. In one one incident that spurred the strike, black street repairmen received pay for two hours when they were sent home because of bad weather, but white employees received a full day's pay. In a speech entitled, I've Been to the Mountaintop, that night before he died, He made at least a dozen references to the Bible, and toward the end he spoke of the end of his own life, as if he knew it may be ending shortly. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. Imagine that. Like anybody, he said, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I am not concerned about that now. 
I just want to do God's will. The audience roared as you heard. They could not know that their hero would be gunned down the very next day at the Lorraine Hotel in downtown Memphis. And though King had a sense of foreboding, he was not despondent because he knew he was doing the Lord's work. Here were the final words of his very final public speech. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. You know, I'd heard Bono in an interview talk about that speech. And then he really started to dig into King's work. And out of it came, as you heard in the last hour, his greatest song, In the Name of Love, which he wrote not only for Dr. King, but it started to reconnect Bono to God, too. As a young boy growing up in Ireland, he had seen Protestants and Catholics kill each other. And he just didn't get it. And he ran away from faith. And the rest of his life, think about the music. I still haven't found what I'm looking for, the streets with no name. What is every single song he's writing about? God and his struggle to get back to him. So listen carefully to the stories of Martin Luther King this week, folks. Listen very carefully. The man who so loved God, who so feared God's judgment, will be stripped of that animating spirit by a fiercely secular media. But it was God and King's desire to serve him that changed this country forever. No amount of revisionist history by anybody can change that. That's what drives totalitarians crazy and secularists. They believe no God shall become before theirs, even if his name is the state. And that's what really drives liberals crazy about Jesus Christ followers. He, his followers believe he is the answer to their problems, not the government. As King said, Jesus lives, Jesus saves. As King said that night in Memphis, a few hours before his death, we are going on. We need all of you. And you know what's beautiful to me? It's to see all of these ministers of the gospel. It's a marvelous picture. Who is it that is supposed to articulate the longings and aspirations of the people more than the preacher? Somehow the preacher must have a kind of fire shut up in his bones. And whenever injustice is around, he must tell it. Somehow the preacher must be an Amos who said, when God speaks, who can but prophesy? Again with Amos, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Somehow the preacher must say with Jesus, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And he's anointed me to deal with the problems of the poor. Indeed. And by the way, you could substitute preacher for rabbi. And as anyone who is involved in the Jewish faith knows the importance of a rabbi in the, not just the synagogue, but in the town, is paramount. And always the rabbi is the person you run to to seek for, seek for and, and receive wisdom. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. 
And for the hour, the life of Martin Luther King, this day in history also brought to you by our friends at Hillsdale College. And my goodness, you want to learn about the American canon, the Western canon, everything from Plato and Aristotle to the Bible to the Founders' Vision, Locke, Montesquieu, straight up to current events. There's no better college in America to send your boy or girl. And by the way, if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can get to you. Their online courses are the best. Their C.S. Lewis course was amazing. And of course, Economics 101, you just can't miss it. They're all available. Go to hillsdale.edu and learn more. When we come back, more on the Reverend Martin Luther King on this day in history and on the day we celebrate the life of Dr. King as a nation. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for the hour, the life of Reverend Martin Luther King being celebrated here. And you were listening to Alicia Keys, one of the great young artists, young R&B artists, going back to her gospel roots and singing one of her favorite songs. And we play that today in honor of King wanted now to dig into a, another speech, this one a sermon, in a church in Chicago on the 17th of August, 1967. Why Jesus Called a Man a Fool. I wanted to play it because what I think what you're going to find interesting is the audio we could find and the audio we couldn't. We searched everywhere, and there were remarkable parts of this speech that were redacted. And so you're going to hear the parts that we could find, and I'm going to read you the rest and leave it to you to think about why we couldn't find the audio on this. So let's start with the beginning of this sermon. And again, that's why we're here today, to honor Dr. King with words from him you are not hearing anywhere else in this country. Anywhere. Let's start. I want to share with you a dramatic little story from the gospel as recorded by St. Luke. It is the story of a man who by all standards of measurement would be considered a highly successful man. Yet Jesus called him a fool. If you will read that parable, you will discover that the central 
character in the drama is a certain rich man. This man was so rich that his farm yielded tremendous crops. In fact, the crops were so great that he didn't know what to do. And it occurred to him that he had only one alternative, and that was to build some new and bigger bonds so he could store all of his crops. This recording is briefly interrupted at this point. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. That brother thought that was the end of life. So he was telling the story of this rich man who thought just eat, drink, and be merry. More. That's the end of life. A story that still resonates, don't you think? But let me now read what we couldn't find. Now, Jesus didn't call the man a fool because he made money in a dishonest fashion. There is nothing in that parable to indicate that this man was dishonest and then he made his money through conniving or exploitation. In fact, it seems to reveal that he had a medium of humanity and that he was a very industrious man. He was a thrifty man, apparently a very hard worker. So Jesus didn't call him a fool because he got his money through dishonest means. And there is nothing here to indicate that Jesus called this man a fool because he was rich. Jesus never made a universal indictment against wealth. It's true that one day a rich young ruler came to him raising some questions about eternal life, and Jesus said to him, sell all. But in that case, Jesus was prescribing individual surgery and not setting forth a universal diagnosis. Why was that cut? Again, I'll leave that to you to think about and ponder. The next clip from this speech. Take a listen. He didn't make contributions to civil rights. He looked at suffering humanity and wasn't concerned about it. He didn't make contributions to civil rights. He looked at suffering humanity and was concerned about it. Let me tell you the part we couldn't find. It's the part that preceded that line. Somehow in life, we must know that we must seek first the kingdom of God. And then all of those other things, clothes, houses, cars, will be added unto us. But the problem is all too many people fail to put first things first. They don't keep a sharp line of demarcation between the things of life and the ends of life. And so this man was a fool because he allowed the means by which he lived to outdistance the ends for which he lived. He was a fool because he maximized the minimum and minimized the maximum. This man was a fool because he allowed his technology to outdistance his theology. This man was a fool because he allowed his mentality to outrun his morality. Somehow he became so involved in the means by which he lived that he couldn't deal with the way to eternal matters. Stripped. Couldn't find it. Again, you think about why. 
Let's play another part of this sermon. Finally, this man was a fool because he failed to realize his dependence on God. Do you know that man talked like he regulated the seasons? That man talked like he gave the rain to grapple with the fertility of the soil. That man talked like he provided the dew. He was a fool because he ended up acting like he was the creator instead of a creature. This man-centered foolishness is still alive today. And then again, this part was redacted. In fact, he said, it has gotten to the point today that some are even saying that God is dead. The thing that bothers me about it is that they didn't give me full information because at least I would have wanted to attend God's funeral. And today I want to ask, who was the coroner that pronounced him dead? I want to raise a question. How long had he been sick? I want to know whether he'd had a heart attack or died of chronic cancer. These questions haven't been answered for me, and I am going on believing and knowing that God is alive. You see, as long as love is around, God is alive. As long as justice is around, God is alive. There are certain conceptions of God that needed to die, but not God. You see, God is the supreme noun of life. He's not an adjective. He is the supreme subject of life. He's not a verb. He's the supreme independent clause. He's not a dependent clause. Everything else is dependent on him. But he is dependent on nothing. My goodness. This is the stuff we should all be talking about every day. Christian or not. Jew or Gentile. And so as we close out this hour, I want to play a little bit and the end of Martin Luther King's great speech to the nation and his march on Washington. So now you'll come to appreciate this very secular speech coming from this man of faith. And you'll come now to listen to it knowing from whom it came and from where it came, from God. Martin Luther King, simply a vassal, a pathway. He knew it, now you know it. From every hill and mole hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside, let freedom ring. And when this happens, and when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. And my goodness, it can make you cry knowing now what we know about the man, knowing now what we know about him knowing that he was more than likely not going to make it to the age of 40. And he didn't, but he still lives with us. 
on this day in history and on the day that we're honoring the Reverend Martin Luther King, we were happy to bring you his own words from his own sermons and the source of everything. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. has been found what's to come has already been so i tell you that i'm pressing on with our American stories. And now it's time for our Wall Street Journal story of the day. And the Wall Street Journal isn't just for business readers, folks. It's America's Journal. Pick it up. And once again, we're going to hear from their regular contributor and our resident doctor on the show, Dr. E. Wesley Ely, a professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University. And here's Dr. Ely sharing his moving story, What I Learned from a dying patient. I had a patient recently whose death was particularly harrowing. 39 years old. Ph.D., scientist, brilliant. She was sent to the ICU team as a fascinoma, meaning a person with a constellation of problems the doctors couldn't figure out. This woman had been physically fine until two months earlier, and now she was growing progressively short of breath, had a little blood in her urine, and had pain in her toes, which were turning blue and red in the cold. Imaging showed that she had a growth on her aortic valve and that sections of her kidneys were dying. The doctors at the outside hospital had diagnosed her with blood clots in her lungs and started her on a blood thinner, but her condition kept worsening. As the day progressed, we started all the needed tests and interventions to help sleuth out the problems and fix them. Hours into my periodic conversations with her and her mother and sister, her mother mentioned that my patient was agnostic. I realized that up to that point, perhaps because of the sheer rapidity of the way things were unfolding, I had neglected to take a spiritual history. Since I teach medical students and residents in physical diagnosis class about the importance of taking a spiritual history, you'd think that I wouldn't fall prey to this oversight, but I had. The literature shows that most patients want to be asked about their spiritual beliefs or non-beliefs, and that many think it rude if healthcare professionals don't consider this important aspect of their well-being. The question should be asked out of respect and in a non-judgmental manner. 
Thus I said to her, Do you have any spiritual values that you want me to know about that might influence your medical decisions? We'll get to her answer in a minute. Within 24 hours of our meeting, the patient had been checked with an array of blood tests and imaging studies. And there it was. The biopsy showed angry cells with too much nuclear size for healthy cytoplasm and prominent nucleoli. Cancer. It was everywhere then. It became a whirlwind because she got shorter of breath by the hour as the cancer and fluid literally filled up her lungs. We went from her arrival in the hope of figuring out what was wrong and seeking a cure, talking about how when she got back to her lab and students, she'd resume where she'd left off, to the depths of despair. The patient's conversations with her sister were difficult, to say the least, and at times they both got weak. Eventually, they affirmed that they had to pave a way to prevent my patient's further suffering. With her mother, however, it was much worse. She looked at me through tears and fear and screamed, This is not fair! Over and over, her sister began printing off her will from an iPad and having things notarized. It was surreal. I won't forget my patient's look of shock and surprise, as if she'd heard me wrong. When I told her that the cells we'd seen under the microscope were cancerous and that the cancer had already spread throughout her body, only eight hours after we told her that she had this incurable illness and that our hope, which at the time seemed plausible, was to get her off the ventilator so she could talk to her family, she stopped breathing and died quietly without any apparent awareness of suffering. Throughout the day, I had tried to be diligent about ensuring that she was able to spend time with her mother and sister. The initial challenge was to use a specific approach towards sedation that balanced her comfort and her clarity of mind so that she could really engage with the family. My last memory of this young scientist is that of her breathing, unconscious and unaware of her surroundings. At this point, she was newly comatose on the sedation and painkillers as we removed the breathing tube and ventilator. I urged her family, nevertheless, tell her what you want her to know. It helps families to have no regrets in the days that follow. The story is many things, and to you it no doubt means something different than it does to me. As this woman's physician, I find that one of the most enduring aspects of the story was the palpable oneness I felt with her and in knowing how in sync we were with everything, body and mind. There was an unusually tight connection, and I sensed that we both knew it. Since antiquity, the greats such as Plato and Aristotle have taught us the concept of body, mind, and spirit as the fullness of existence, a triad still embraced by many today. My patient and I were in tune after talking about those first two, and then when I took her spiritual history, she perceived that our beliefs diverged. She affirmed what her mother had told me. Yes, I'm agnostic, and it's okay that we differ on that. I nodded and was left to wonder how and why, without having talked about this earlier, she had both understood that we differed in this third piece of the triad and thought it important to offer me reassurance. An autopsy will answer many things, like what was growing on her heart valve and the source of her cancer which we think was bowel, pancreatic, or ovarian. But no physical finding, microscopic sighting, or laboratory test is going to help me learn any more about her spiritual side. I remember her loving manner and her inquisitiveness about life. I know that she was thinking of her estranged father, 
her students, and her nieces whom she'd never see again. She wasn't sure about the existence of the divine, but her courage, daring to face what was happening despite not wanting to hear the worst possible news, utterly confirmed the human spirit. She revealed the connectedness we have in all of our imperfect, vulnerable lives, and I can still feel it now. And again, that's Dr. E. Wesley Ely, a professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University. He writes often for the Wall Street Journal and contributes here at Our American Stories, beautiful stories like that. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories, and that was a dog sneezing, if you can believe it. One more time, Jesse. And that was BarkPost.com's selection from the number one viral dog video of 2015. And we played this delicious sneeze, and I'm sure all of you have a different sneezing dog sound in your life. And I have a, I have a very loud pug when it comes to snoring, and I am going to record that just for this guest the next time she joins us and it's jory larson now joins us and she is well she's the key person behind barkpost.com thanks for joining us jory hi thank you for having me you know many people believe dogs are people i do i mean they are members of my family i want to play another short clip for you this time of dog owners treating their now famous dog mishka with over 100 million youtube views like a human. Mishka, I, I love, love you. you. I, love you. I, I love you. I love you. I love you. Good girl. I love you. <laughs> Jory, in your case, you gave your dog an actual IQ test. And it That's didn't go right. and it didn't did. go well. Talk about that. Yeah, sure. So um Bark Post, one of my editors came to me and said, you know, we, we have this idea for um, an at-home intelligence test that you can administer to your dog and then just write about the results and see what happens. So um, I followed along. There's an internet doggy IQ test that you can follow along at home. Um, and I, I took an afternoon and I had my husband photograph it so we could have some pictures for the post. And I kind of went through, um, I think it's about four to five steps can do it in less than an hour um, and I was really curious to see what Winnie's IQ would be like any dog owner um, you know you think your dog is the smartest dog in the world at times and of course they also have their derpy moments is how we like to refer to it when yeah. they're uh, behaving like less than an Einstein but um, the test actually it was really interesting to see how Winnie reacted I, I really couldn't have predicted how she was going to perform. And your your Winnie, your dear Winnie, is a two year old Australian Shepherd, right? That's right. Yeah, it, it's a breed that's pretty, pretty known for their intelligence. Um, 
right up there with border collies. At least that's what Australian Shepherd owners always kind of, uh, maybe it's a myth that we're circulating around that they're as smart as border collies. Um, but yeah, so she's, she rings a bell when she tells us she has to go to the bathroom outside, which I always thought was kind of uh, a signi- you know, a signifier of intelligence. Um, so I was really curious to see how she would perform. Well, I can tell you this. I have uh, pugs, and I don't even need to give them an IQ test, Jory, because these dogs, they're just not right. They're not particularly smart, and they cannot be taught. I have given up trying to train them. I've owned them my whole life, and anyone who owns pugs knows what I'm talking about. Talk about your, your – you said at one point, you said about your dog, I swear she understands long strings of English, and she rings a bell to tell us when she has to go potty. That's pretty damn smart, Jory. Yeah, yeah. So we actually um, – I think we got this idea from a book that we read when she was a puppy. We hung um, a bell next to the door, and we started when – we got her when she was 10 weeks old, so we started right away – Every time we took her out to go to the bathroom, we would ring the bell. So she would start to associate that feeling of having to go to the bathroom with ringing the bell. And she got it within two weeks. So she was, she was less than three months old. She would nudge the bells with her nose, and then we would know to let her out. Right. So we thought that was pretty cool and pretty smart. Yeah, it is pretty cool, and it's, it's darn smart. And again, I, I'm getting jealous listening to you describe the intelligence of your dog, because ours are, are so silly. They, they don't even know where to poop. I mean, they, they get confused about, like, pooping. So tell us about the test you did with, well, a, that involved a blanket and your dog's head. Talk about that test. Yes. So, so the first step in the intelligence test is to toss a blanket over your dog's head in, in one swift motion. And then you're going to start your stopwatch, and you're going to time how long it takes for them to kind of shake off this towel off their head. Right. So when we first threw it on, she she did nothing. She froze. And so I started to think, uh-oh, this, this might be a red flag. Um, and I, I think what it was is she might have been a little frightened by, you know, what, what are mom and dad doing to me right now? Um, so she did wiggle off, and she shimmied it off in 19 seconds. So that earned her three points on on the scale. And if it took them... You know, 31 seconds to two minutes, okay, you only get two points. Um, if you try but you don't get the blanket off at all in two minutes, the dog only gets a point. And if the dog doesn't attempt to do anything, just lets the blanket kind of sit there until you come to their rescue, <laughs> right. they get zero points. They get zero. Again, my pugs, yeah. I know they're a zero. Jory, I don't, I don't have to run them through this test. Talk about talk about some other things that you're you're you're, you're testing in, in this in this space. What are some of the other things you look at in terms of dog sure. intelligence? So we also there's another um, test where you're kind of seeing if they can understand almost object permanence. So you place a high value treat, so whether it's salami or string cheese or whatever your dog you know really wants to get at, you cut up a little piece and you put it underneath. Um, like a dish towel, a regular towel, a blanket, and you make sure that they see that it goes under there. Right. And then the whole point is to see, start to stopwatch again, how long it takes your dog to actually get the towel off the treat. Um, and this is where our Winnie had her first setback. She couldn't do it. She could not get the towel off the treat. And at one point, she was actually kind of trying to suck the string cheese through the towel. <laughs> it's like right. she, she gave up totally. She kind of resigned herself to the fact that she wasn't going to actually get to chew the string cheese, but maybe she could slurp up some flavor. So that was a, that was a minor setback. Yeah, I'm not sure how my, my producers would do on that one, though, either. I mean, I don't think they do well either. They just try to eat through the towel. 
Any other any other tests, Joey? Uh, t- talk about some other parts of this intelligence test. Uh, this is fascinating. Yeah, sure. So um, the third the third step in this test, you um, it's it involves a treat again. So you're going to cut up another piece of your high value treat, and you make a little wooden plank, you know, maybe a foot off the ground, um, supported. We did books on either end. And we place the treat underneath the wooden plank far enough away that your dog can't quite reach it with her, her muzzle alone. She has to use a paw. That's, this is sort of testing, you know, do they have the wherewithal to, to use other tools to get to the treat besides their, their snout? And so you cover it with a towel and you start the stopwatch again. And uh, you time it to see how long it takes them to actually paw the towel out, you know, get off the towel and get to the treat. Um, and so with Winnie again, she, she pawed at the towel. She was able to pull it from underneath the plank. She understood that she had to use her paws, but she could not, she, she never understood the concept of actually getting the towel off of the treat. So she started to chew this time we used a milk bone. She started to chew the milk bone through the towel and actually she put a hole in my brand new towel, which I should never have used for this test. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Maybe you get a bad score on the owner test there, Jory. Right. And I will say, I think, you know, with any dog that you're testing, I think Winnie was a little thrown by all all of these tricks and I think she was kind of suspicious. So if you do this test at home, you have to take it with a grain of salt because your dog might just be kind of thinking, what's up with mom and dad? I'm not going to perform. Right. The heck with them. What are they, what are they doing to me? And this is uh, this is their goofy way of entertaining themselves. I'm not on for this. You know what I'd love, Joey? Send us some material periodically. We are fascinated with dogs and human beings. And I think as people are getting lonelier, too, as people are having smaller families, uh, the pet, I think, is playing a more central part of human beings' lives. And I don't know if you, you agree with that. Maybe just a quick second on that. Do you, do you think that's what's happening in part, Joey? Absolutely. I, I really do. I, I feel like dogs and, and cats probably too, but dogs are our specialty at Bark Post. Um, I, I feel like more and more people are treating them like members of the family. Um, you know, you see whether it's a high-end doggy daycare or, you know, you, you don't have a dog here anymore. You take them to a nice boarding place, a nice kennel. It's, I feel like everything um, is kind of going a little bit more of the luxury route when it comes to pet ownership. Um, yeah, and it does feel like maybe, maybe there is something that there that the families are getting a little bit smaller, people are living further away from their family members, so it's nice when you come home after a long day, you open the door, and, you know, your dog is always going to be so happy to see you, and, and it makes you feel like home whenever, well, whenever you're with your dog. I think so. that's what's going on, too, and I know that my wife is now spending more on meals for my dogs with their fancy food than me, and so... I, and, I, and I don't care. I, I've, I've, I'm done fighting it, Joey. The dog now is more important than me, and I'm fine with it. Joey jo Larson, thanks for joining us. Keep sending us stuff. We'd love to hear more from you, from Bark Post, and from the animals. Thanks so much for joining sounds, us. Sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And Jesse's just having so much fun playing with the dials and playing the dog sounds. And we love animals here on Our American Stories. And we love sports. We love love. And we love music. And when we come back, more after these messages.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for one of our favorite features, Radio Candy. Here's Jesse. Wendell Brockway of Rockwell, Texas, passed away on May 28, 2017, at the age of 77. He met the love of his life, Donna, at the local Dairy Queen. They were married for 59 years and raised four children. Mr. Brockway enjoyed a 27-year career with Safeway Foods and upon his retirement began working again as a maintenance supervisor, a position he held for over 18 years before becoming ill. On the side, he and his sons and son-in-law were always working on construction projects. They were either under a house or on a roof. In his younger years, he coached boxing and baseball to his brothers, sons, and the kids in the neighborhood. In his spare time, Mr. Brockway loved to hunt and fish. He enjoyed watching his favorite teams, the Texas Rangers and the Dallas Cowboys. Wendell was also a man of faith and a member of the Millwood Church in Union Valley, Texas. But old Wendell here had a story that he loved to tell. But it's probably not the kind of story that you're expecting. My name is Wendell Brockway. I'm talking about a thing that happened to me in 1958. I was about one mile out of Union Valley, Texas. And me and my brother-in-law was down Joe Anderson's hauling hay. We had a big truck to unload, and we unloaded, stacked it in the barn. And then we got ready to come home, and we got in the car. We was in an old car, an old Studebaker. We're driving down the road, and there's an old house on the left-hand side, and an old crowd. And we went by it, and as we was going by it, I looked over to the left, and I seen this big white thing standing up yelling. And it made my hair on the back of my neck stand up. And my brother-in-law was driving, and he looked over at me, and he said, Wendell, you see that? And I said, yeah, I seen it. I said, what was it? He said, I don't know when it'll be something. I said, well, turn around, let's go back and look at it. So he went up about a half mile and there's an old road and he pulled in there and we turned around and went back. I didn't have nothing other than a cold drink bottle in the floor. So I picked it up. He said, what are you gonna do with that? And I said, well, man, that's a big thing. I don't know what it is. I said, I think it's a, some kind of monster or something. And we pulled back by there, and that thing was still out there. And he's sh- shaking his hands up and down. And he was white, had them long hairs on, it, on his arms and body. And uh, 
my brother-in-law said, do you see that? And I said, yeah, I see it. And uh, we went on back down the road. And we turned around again and went back. And when we went back, it was gone. And we pulled on past it, went on into town. I told my wife about it, and my sister, but they didn't believe me. But I actually seen it. And James, Fred Taylor was my brother-in-law. And if he's still alive, he could tell the same story. But that was back in 1958. I'm glad to be able to tell the story about it. That's all of it. Fischel is a Grammy Award-winning producer, former A&R executive, and veteran musician who played the pedal steel guitar for Emmylou Harris for over 10 years. Here, he describes and demonstrates the workings of this legendary musical contraption. This, the steel is essentially just a system of uh, bell, bell, bell cranks, uh, levers, springs, uh, rods and uh, and whatnot, cooperating linkages, I think is a good way to describe it, that all allow you to change a, a basic tuning from, uh, from one chord to another. And what happens here is we've got a, a basic E tuning here, just like your open E on a guitar. Oh, hold on. Excuse me. We've got a B, an E, a G sharp, a B, and an E. So you got an open E chord there, and the first pedal down here on the floor raises the B note of that open E chord up to a C sharp. So there you've got a C sharp minor. And then the second pedal raises the, uh, the G sharp up to an A. So you've got an E sus a suspended chord there with that. But when you put the two pedals together, your E notes stay the same. Your G sharps go up to A, and the C sharp, the B's, excuse me, the B's go up to C sharp, and you suddenly have an A chord. So the open E chord goes up to an A chord with uh, the two floor pedals. And actually you end up playing maybe 50-60% of the time thinking in terms of A rather than E. So then you've got all these licks that come off that, that uh, pedal down position and that's probably the sound that people are, are really familiar with. Uh, that. That's just all working with the floor pedals and using them to your advantage to bend notes in a fixed position. So you add the bar to it. Then you've got the freedom to take a chord and move it all around and uh, add vibrato to it and add uh, your, your own uh, nuance and, and shadings and emotion to the note just by moving the bar. So it just kind of opens it up to a lot of lot more possibilities, and uh, rather than being in a fixed position on the guitar, you're able to slide in between the frets. 
add a little bit of vibrato to it, and then you're off to the races, you know. Candy, sounds that soothe the soul. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we like to talk about everything. Well, everything except the following. Uh, we don't do Republicanese or Democraties. Uh, we don't do hard right, hard left. We don't do politics. We don't do opinion. So if you want that or news, well, you're on the wrong dial. I'm, I urge you to switch. Um, but if you're looking for stories, if you're looking for something interesting, something you care about, something you didn't know about but you're going to know about, um, stick around. I think you'll like what you're about to hear. We do everything, the arts uh, and sports. We love talking about sports. And today we're going to talk about the very first Super Bowl. And by the way, I'm old enough to remember it. And I was a big sports fan. My dad was. My whole family was. And Americans love the Super Bowl. And so here with our version of this day in history, because on this day in history, the very first Super Bowl was played, Greg Hengler is recorded with his pal, Mr. Anonymous, the following piece. On this day in 1967, Americans huddled around their televisions for what has now been called the very first Super Bowl. I say now because this first best of contest between the Kansas City Chiefs and the Green Bay Packers had not yet been labeled the Super Bowl but was simply called the World Championship Game. Packers quarterback Bart Starr earned the game's MVP, but the Packers' greatest asset was on the sideline, head coach Vince Lombardi. In the mid-1960s, 
The intense competition for players and fans between the National Football League, NFL, and the upstart American Football League, AFL, led to talks of a possible merger. It was decided that the winners of each league's championship would meet each year in a single game to determine the world champion of football. Since postseason college games were known as bowl games, AFL founder Lamar Hunt suggested that the new pro championship be called the Super Bowl. The term was officially introduced in 1969, along with Roman numerals to designate the individual games. In 1970, the NFL and AFL merged into one league with two conferences, each with 13 teams. Here's a look at that first championship game. On January 15, 1967, on a bright, clear day in the Los Angeles Coliseum, the big question which had troubled the football world for seven years was answered. For the first time, the Green Bay Packers, champions of the National Football League, played the Kansas City Chiefs, the best team in the American Football League. The game was the first concrete evidence of the merger of the two leagues, and it was played for the highest stakes ever, $15,000 per man for the winning players. The Super Bowl was seen by the largest sports audience in the history of television. 65 million people watching the broadcast on two networks. Thousands of people here in the stands and there are millions of people on television and everyone looking and all with speculation to see what kind of a game the Green Bay Packers are going to play today. Right? Right. right? I want you to be proud of your profession. It's a great profession. You be proud of this game and you can do a great deal for football today. Great deal for all the players and the league and everything else. Go out there and play this ball game like I know you can play it. Lombardi's pregame attempts to inspire his team had achieved the opposite effect. He made us so cautious that in the first half, we literally played, making sure we didn't make a mistake. When you're concerned and you're so intimidated by the situation, then sometimes it takes away the, the real heart of what you do. We were tight, and anybody would have been tight in that situation. But also, Kansas City was really good. I mean, they had some great, great football players. In the early going, we didn't protect the passer well. Bart got hit. He got hit by my man. I know that. Starr wasn't the only Packer on the turf. When Boyd Dowler re-injured his shoulder, his sleep-deprived and hungover replacement was sent in. Now we have our first sub of the game. Dowler is going out, and Max McGee now is coming in as flanker. Well, when Boyd goes down, I said, uh-oh. Well, this is the very thing I was concerned about. And the flip side of that, though, based on his ability to be a clutch performer when called upon, I just had a gut feeling that Max would be ready, and he was. He steps in, and he plays like gangbusters. Dale to the right, McGee to the left, star dropping straight back, hit as he throws, out the ball, and McGee And the old veteran scores the first touchdown of the Super Bowl game. Despite McGee's unexpected heroics, the Chiefs kept the game close. The Packers had seen enough. In the third quarter, Lombardi turned the dogs loose on defense. 
Chiefs were held scoreless for the rest of Super Bowl One, and Max McGee couldn't be stopped. With a mixture of satisfaction and relief, the now relaxed Packer bench could enjoy their Super Bowl win along with their unflappable teammate. What a day! It's the stuff of legend, and it should be. And Bart got the most valuable player because he earned it, but they probably should have split it and had co-MVPs because Max had that great a game. In this superb spectacle of a sport, even the losers can find some satisfaction. Back to cornfields, huh? On another day in another year, it will surely be the turn of the AFL. But this spectacle of a sport belonged to Green Bay. Even though it is a national tournament, the award was initially inscribed with the words World Professional Football Championship. It was officially renamed in 1970 in memory of Vince Lombardi after his death from cancer to commemorate his leading the Green Bay Packers to victories in the first two Super Bowls. After the game was over, a reporter asked Vince Lombardi if he thought Kansas City was a good team. Lombardi responded, that he did not think Kansas City was good enough to play in the NFL, comparing them to NFL championship game loser Dallas. The first Super Bowl is the only one to have been simulcast in the United States by two networks. NBC had the rights to nationally televised AFL games, while CBS held the rights to broadcast NFL games. Both networks were allowed to televise the game. The first Super Bowl's halftime entertainment consisted of college bands from the University of Arizona and the University of Michigan. On average, 80 to 90 million people are tuned into the Super Bowl at any given moment, while some 130 to 140 million watch at least some part of the game. The last five Super Bowls have been the five most watched telecasts in U.S. television history. Prior to that. The most-watched telecast was the Mash finale in February 1983, with 106 million viewers. And nine of the ten most-watched U.S. television programs in history were Super Bowls. Finally, no Super Bowl has ever gone into overtime. The first Super Bowl, this day in history. Great job on that piece, Greg. And I remember that game, and I remember what a joke people thought the AFL was. Oh, the AFL! What a waste! This is so silly. There's the NFL, that's real football, and there's the AFL. How goofy! And of course, by Super Bowl three, everything changed. That was the then Baltimore Colts and Johnny Unitas against this upstart Joe Namath with his handlebar mustache and his white shoes, Broadway Joe. And the unbeatable Colts, big point favorites, get beat 16 to seven, 16 to seven, by the AFL, and that's when it became official. There was parody, and no one ever joked about the AFL again. The upstarts taking it to the old, old, original National Football League. This is Lee Habib. This day in history, as always, brought to you. By the great folks at Hillsdale College, and if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can always get to you with their terrific online courses. There are over a dozen there now. 
The one on C.S. Lewis is terrific. And Constitution 101, well, I learned more watching that than I did in three years at the University of Virginia School of Law. And this is Our American Stories.